1: just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketship fm twenty four. That's pork porkbun p o r k b u n dot com forward slash rocketship fm twenty four. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. So last week, we kicked off this series with a primer on mental models.
0: That's right. We went through some of Charlie Munger's famous mental models, Charlie
1: Munger being the father of mental models. And this week, we're going to look at some mental models specifically for product managers. Models that help us make better decisions and models that help us teach our teams how to make better decisions.
0: And there are some good ones. Opportunity cost, confirmation bias. Semmelweis, Reflex, and even Key Failure. All do right, right, don't, don't give them
1: all away here. <laughs> why? Because we want to save some surprises for the show.
0: But why?
1: Because if we give them all away now, people might stop listening. But why? Because they listen to learn from us, and we want to deliver on that promise. But why do we want to do that? Because if they don't keep on listening, then we won't get more advertising revenue. And why is that a concern? Because then my fragile ego will get bruised. Do you see what I did there? No.
0: The five whys. The, that's another mental <laughs> model.
1: <laughs> all right. All right.
0: <laughs> Maybe we should just get right into the show.
1: Welcome to Rocketship.fm.
0: Rocketship FM is produced in partnership
1: with Product Collective, where your hosts, Michael Saka and Mike Belcito. Okay, so at the beginning of the last episode, we had Gabriel Weinberg, CEO of DuckDuckGo, and Brandon Cho, the VP of product at Shopify, give their definition of a mental model.
2: A mental model is really just a concept um, that you use to simplify the world around you. So in startup land, there's many, right? There's critical mass, which actually comes from physics, about how to think of a a company getting traction. There's the jobs to
3: be done theory. There's disruptive innovation. There's, There's hundreds of these yeah i i think of a mental model as sort of something that is proven to be true in the way that the world works uh that you gain through experience over time that you sort of you build up this heuristic so that you you stop kind of challenging that that's the way things work in a way so you know charlie munger who is the uh, uh berkshire hathaway vice chairman he he was the one that really kind of popularized i think uh, not, not mental models, but really the idea of, you know, accumulating them over time in a work is what he called them. And he basically described it as, as just like wisdom. <laughs> so like, as you, uh, as you get older and you accumulate wisdom, uh, how do you actually use that wisdom to, uh, make better decisions and to live a better life. And, uh, so there's so many elements of that, I think, in decision-making when it comes to product, and uh, but it also just like is is a important part of just life i think um while the
0: original mental models were largely based around finance and investments
1: they were quickly adopted to other industries and other focuses today we're going to look at models particularly useful for product managers models to m- maybe help you make better decisions make sure that you're covering all your blind spots gabriel weinberg points to about 300 that help him run duck from the product side all the way to the leadership side
0: three hundred that is that's wild uh how many episodes are we going to cover mental models for michael
1: (laughs) i mean look we're probably not going to get to 300 or or anywhere close but we're going to cram a bunch in here to get you started okay well do you really think that they'll help folks make better decisions i mean they're not foolproof but yeah i i do think they help you take a step back Um, in fact, Gabriel Weinberg and Lauren McCain, she's
0: a statistician and researcher in the medical space.
1: Yes. So they wrote the book super thinking, which is basically an encyclopedia of mental models for product people.
0: So there's one model that might just be the most important
1: model. Wait, we're not going to start with the most important first, right? Shouldn't we build up to it? Tease it halfway through the episode.
0: I mean, we could do that, but since I already sort of mentioned it, let me just get out of the way so possibly the most important mental model is
2: like opportunity cost is is arguably the most important model (laughs) from in general which is you know whenever you do something um it's not just like the cost of your time or money you put out to do that there's also the cost of the opportunity you didn't do right you got to consider all your options but when you think about that there's a lot of other models that relate to really operationalizing or or, valuing valuing
4: your time and what do you get out of your time
2: and there's like so there's diminishing returns you know there's the 80 20 kind of Pareto principle stuff and there's there's about 30 models that all relate
1: to that one concept and they all teach you a little bit a little side of it so opportunity cost is basically every road mapping exercise ever continuously weighing one decision against another right
0: right so universal but not the most helpful Okay, another quick one. Did you know that MVP or minimum viable product is actually a mental model?
3: Yeah,
1: I I was actually surprised to see it, but yeah.
3: Okay,
0: so most of us know what an MVP is, but do you know why this is such a pervasive mental model?
1: Because it helps you figure out the essentials of what you need to build and nothing more?
0: Kind of, but there are actually two key quotes that really clicked this for me. The first one is right here.
2: No well-laid plan ever survives first contact with the enemy.
1: Okay. And here's the second one.
2: Everyone
0: has a plan until they get punched in the mouth.
1: Wait, what was that?
0: Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth.
1: That wasn't Mike Tyson, was it? No, that was Steli FD. Okay, but I'm I'm not really following the MVP connection here. The power in the MVP is
0: getting it to market so that you can get punched in the face or so you can get customer feedback as quickly as possible.
1: Right, because it's only a plan until it gets tested. Got it. Makes sense. Okay, let's talk more about how to be less wrong. Okay, let's talk about that. What you got? So you ever have a conversation with a friend and then it veers like into politics? And at first you assume that they think the same as you?
0: Yeah, I maybe have had one too many of those types of conversations, (laughs) especially these days where everybody tries to sort of be an armchair politician.
1: Yeah. So that initial assumption is completely natural. Um, We have a bias towards assuming that people experience things the same way that we do. Uh
0: Uh-huh. And that could be users of a product.
1: Exactly. So we naturally assume that people have similar experiences or motivations as us. Um, So the third story mental model helps to break us out of this trap.
0: Third story. Okay. What's the second story?
1: So it's based on the principle that there's two sides to every story. The third story helps you see the situation for what it really is. Okay. So
0: how do you use it?
1: So take a situation or even a user experience. Imagine a complete recording of that situation and then try to think about what like an outside audience would see as happening as if you're watching a movie. Um, So what story would they come away telling? How much would they agree with your story versus the other side of the story? And the other person's story, that might be a user of your product. Exactly. So we often build for the happy path because we think users are here to do something very, very specific. But oftentimes, that's not the case. So you might think an experience is delightful. They might think it's annoying because it takes too long. The key is learning to, dis- to decipher the gap or the difference between your story, what you built, and then how it's experienced. There's another model that lots of us
0: run into at companies, especially larger companies, with built-in institutional knowledge. Yeah, let me, that's uh, the Semelweiss S- reflex. Uh, Ignaz Semmelweis was a 19th century Hungarian doctor who worked at a teaching hospital where doctors routinely handled cadavers and also delivered babies without washing their hands in between.
1: That's gross. Yeah.
0: Well, he thought so, too. The the death rate of mothers who gave birth in this part of the hospital was like 10 percent.
1: Wow. That's really high. Yeah,
0: it's very, very high. And there was actually another wing of the same hospital where midwives would deliver babies and exclusively deliver babies. And the death rate was only 4 percent.
1: Oh, so that's a big difference between doctors and midwives.
0: Yeah, and he obsessed over this, finally figuring out that the difference was the handling of the cadavers without washing hands and finally instituted a rule where doctors had to wash their hands.
1: Ah, and the death rate dropped.
0: Pretty much immediately.
1: So everyone praised him. He went on to become a national hero. Uh,
0: No, actually, his theories were completely rejected at the time and (laughs) doctors were offended that he would insinuate that anything they were doing would actually cause additional deaths and... They chose to ignore that fact that death rates were down
1: when they actually washed their hands. Ah, so that brings us to confirmation bias. I'm not there yet, but yes. Okay. <laughs> so
0: Semmelweis basically went crazy and was admitted to an asylum and ended up dying at the age of 47. It actually took another 20 years for the medical industry to accept his findings as truth. And only after Louis Pasteur's work on germ theory further proved Semmelweis' findings.
1: So he was awarded
0: something, right? Well, a mental model, which is now (laughs) known as the Semmelweis reflex, which helps to explain why ideas are rejected simply because they fall outside the conventional thinking of that time. Now, Semmelweis was able to see past the current accepted conventional thinking of that time, and he independently concluded that there was a better way to do things. But he wasn't able to get over the fact that no one else wanted to see things from his perspective.
1: So knowing this and recognizing can really change how you frame an idea or a finding inside of a company where some of these biases may exist.
0: Yeah, or maybe you take it outside of a company, which is why so much disruption
1: happens from folks that are outside of an industry. Right, their reputation or their jobs aren't at stake if they question the status quo. So they're truly free to think outside the box without these constraints. Um, All right, so let's break here for a word from our sponsors.
0: So one thing you hear all the time when working with engineers is technical debt
1: so you're saying there's actually a mental model for technical debt well according to Gabriel and Lauren absolutely
2: by technical debt I'm sure people probably in this audience know but it's like you know you make these short term technical decisions um, to kind of hack something together but ultimately they're not great long term decisions you may have to clean it up now in all cases it's not necessarily a bad decision you should know about it because ultimately you have to pay down the debt later so there's kind of Two aspects to that. One is we extend the analogy because it's it's a generally useful mental model. Um, so you can have, you know, management debt, not hiring executive team soon enough. You have diversity debt, you know, not hiring enough diverse people. Um, so you can extend this concept forever. But it also relates to a bunch of other mental models. So like we talk about um, the one that famous poem. You know, you swallow a fly and then you have to swallow something else to get the fly out. Um, <laughs> swallow something else. There was a real example of this like we didn't put it in the book, but I tried to find the actual uh, research behind it. and I couldn't get enough uh, like sourcing to put it in, but like somewhere around here or New Jersey. I
4: think it was New York State. Was
2: it New York State? You want to tell that story? Yeah, there so, was,
4: um, you know, they were having overpopulation of deer and they were like, well, what do we need to do? We need to find a natural predator. So then um, they got some coyotes and they tried to populate with coyotes and then the coyotes got of control and then they're like well what's the next predator up the line mountain lions you know and so it gets to the point that you know it's just like now we have now we have too many mountain lions exactly and right now I mean we do have in Pennsylvania an overpopulation of deer and there's naturally quite a number of coyotes that are that are popping up and people are all upset about it but it's like You know, we live in nature.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's this notion that your decision today really can have a lot of impact on the decisions in the future. And so uh, the kind of the opposite, a couple opposite models that we talk about in the book that help you with that is this notion of kind of preserving optionality. You know, like once you bring in the coyotes, they're hard to get rid of. (laughs) So you want to kind of make decisions knowing in the future uh, to the best you can that you're not closing down your options. Yeah,
4: and if you make a mistake, how can you undo it?
1: And this leads directly to a mental model created by, drumroll. roll, uh, <laughs> Jeff Bezos himself. Of
2: course. Here's Gabriel. And then there's this notion of the precautionary principle, which is, you know, effectively kind of do no harm. But the idea is that if you know something could cause a lot of harm, um, you may want to be take more precaution with it. Um, until you really more understand the facts. And this gets down to another related model um, that we write about, same same chapter. This is a good example of how they're all interrelated, but it comes from uh, Jeff Bezos, actually, um, in one of his shareholder letters talking about reversible versus irreversible decisions. Um, and so irreversible decisions, simple decisions you make them every day at a company, they're, um, sorry, right, reversible. <laughs> they're reversible. Um, he makes the analogy of a doorway. You can you know, open the door, you walk back through, you know, it's very, very easy. Um, with those decisions, you don't need a big process because um, you can just reverse a decision. For the irreversible decisions, you know, like um, selling your company, having a kid, I think is one we, we use. Um, you you uh, you know you really have to think harder about that. And so distinguishing that on a day-to-day basis is a skill for an entrepreneur or a manager. Like you really wanna know, is this an irreversible decision or a reversible decision? And then do a different process based on that.
4: It reminds me of the bike shedding principle as well. Like about, you know, if, about how much time you should be spending um, talking on a specific um, problem. You wanna explain?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, it, there's a law of uh, triviality in the book, which is basically organizations spend way too much time on trivial issues (laughs) versus the actual issues that matter. Um, And there's good examples of like uh, the the famous example, which is where bike shedding came from is, you know, there was a budget meeting, um, this this is a fictional example, but it's been used a lot because it's where the concept came out of where there's a, a, a team of people deciding on a nuclear reactor and like what, um, what they need a budget for it. And it's so complicated that no one really knows how to comment on it. So they basically just agree that they're gonna go for it. And then the next thing on the agenda is like at the office, they're gonna have a bike shed, and like what color should the bike shed be? And they spend like an hour arguing over this because everyone can can weigh in on that decision. But in reality, it is just a waste a of time. Com- <laughs> complete waste of time. Yeah. And so you should basically know that ahead of time. There's there's ways to counteract that, like set your agendas up, kind of knowing the importance, time box things, et cetera. Um, But it's all in this general notion of, um, you know, unintended consequences of kind of your short-term decisions.
1: So you've heard about the time value principle?
0: Sure. The concept that money available at the present time is worth more than the identical sum in the future due to its potential earning capacity. But what about the time
1: value of shipping? Okay. All right. I could, I could see where you're going with this. So here's Brandon Chu of Shopify.
3: Uh, what I'd always uh, struggled as a product manager, this is probably well, actually the first mental model I really used in product is with the team to describe to them, like, Hey, we're building this like full, you know, this full feature and it, it'll do X, Y, and Z. And and that's awesome. And we envision this big bang launch and customers tweeting about it. And it's on TechCrunch and it's awesome. And <laughs> excuse me. and along the way, though, you know, we may have actually delivered or at least implemented in the back end feature X of X, Y, Z. And there is a very strong argument at that moment to say, like, if we're really customer oriented would the customer care that we're packaging it up in XYZ, uh, feature X, feature Y or feature Z, or would they make actually the decision if they were here just give me X right now because that helps me now. <laughs> I want that value now. I don't care about it later, or rather the value of me using that feature now is greater than me getting it. And this is something that I always found a very useful uh, way to have a discussion about scoping and to have a discussion about what, like how we should think about how to scope and how to build milestones and how to iterate. It's like, what is really the fastest way we can get something to a customer so that we can actually create the impact for them because it's not even about shipping, it's not about shipping the product. It's about creating the impact to the customer. So the, the more you can, the earlier you can get that to the customer, the more value you're actually delivering over time. So in a given year, instead of waiting that year to launch XYZ together, you know, launch X in four months, launch Y in eight months and then launch Z at, at the 12 month period. And then therefore you've actually get, gotten in the case of launching X uh, eight months earlier, you're giving eight months more value to a customer. And same thing with Y. So you, you add all those things up over time, You know, depending on if you really do value the time value shipping and you ship faster and get value and impact customers faster, you can end up over a, you know, a five year period Uh, creating double the amount of customer value, even though you're building the same thing. And how about another one? Um, And this one is
1: actually a Brandon Chu original key failure indicators. That sounds counterproductive. It's not at all. Actually, here's Brandon explaining it.
3: The idea that there are contra metrics, really, and what I always find uh, in in the ways that most product teams will structure their goals is they don't ask, like, what is healthy metric growth, right? Like, if you only narrowly focus on one thing, are you really accounting for all the qualitative ways that you could accomplish growth in that one metric that are actually bad, right? There are so many ways to game metrics. So what's amazing about a key failure indicator is it's it's, it's, it's bounding your success metrics in a healthy way. It's making sure that it only grows uh, in a way that is ultimately good for the company, and is not, you know, mortgaging the future or whatnot, like pumping dollars into just growing. Let's say something very simple, like number of signups, uh, month over month growth. But then you're completely like tripling your CAC or something like that along the way. Uh, so I think it's just it's, it's a great thought exercise for me. It's just like, okay, you want it to grow, you want you know revenue to grow. Uh, what is the healthiest way that that revenue can grow? You know, and the answer is gonna be like, I would love revenue to grow with also the cost of acquisition dropping, right? Like, like it's actually those conversations that are really meaningful to the team and have them understand the system more because you know, a lot of product companies, they'll organize their folks, like even in the funnel, your, your lead to sign up and your sign up to conversion and et cetera. And there is something lost when you are narrowly focusing people on a single metric they're not understanding the system and how, and and if anything, software is all systems and feedback loops about, uh, you know, things that happen up top funnel will affect the down funnel or affect you 12 months from now in some other way with retention or churn. And I think that, uh, I'd rather push all product teams to have a holistic understanding of any, uh, changes they make in the product or features that they build. Uh, I think that's just a higher bar for them. And it also leads to just, more sophisticated decision-making that is something that's healthy for, for everyone.
0: That is actually pretty fascinating. Okay, let's, we should probably take a quick break for a word from our sponsors.
1: All right, so this brings us to one of the truest mental models out there. I'm listening I don't know if you're ready for it. This one, this one hits really close to home for any product manager. Okay. you going to tell us? Yes. Version two is a lie.
0: Um, that does hit close to home for me.
3: So here's Brandon again. It's called version two is a lie. And it's this whole concept that like in every company, like there's always this hard trade offs that PMs and teams are making about like okay, okay, let's get to MVP. Let's ship, let's ship, let's ship. And then there's all these like, oh, we need to do this, we need to do this, we need to do this. And uh, we're like, don't worry, worry. that'll be in, we'll do that in, after launch. We'll do that in the second milestone. And, and the reality is that more often than not, once that first launch happens, like no, like it, it, your, your product team was not just locally optimized for that one feature. You are a team that helps the whole company. So often there's all these competing things like, okay, you launched that, go now, do this completely other thing. Right. We've been waiting for you to launch so that you can do this other thing, actually. So and then you're like, what about this huge backlog? We made all these decisions thinking we could build the second version 1.1 or whatever it is. And they're like, no, 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 no we can't do that. <laughs> so I think where uh, it has prevented failure and also created some because I, I didn't do it in, earlier in my career is um, it really made me think about walking away after the launch and to say, like, how do we act like almost to accept that as uh, the common case or the thing that will happen for sure? And that, that question actually changes the way that we will structure what we launch in the first version. And also, and I don't mean just like add more things. It's actually, sometimes the answer is to reduce even more features out of it. And then actually put forward things like how do we build operational tooling and support? so that when this thing starts scaling, the support team automatically has the data and tooling they need to handle the customer growth. Uh, Because what happens is you start uh, building all these features and products in different areas that are not fully maintainable and fully scalable. And then you're moving on to different areas and these things, I don't know, a lot of people have experienced this, I'm sure, like the, if you ship it, you own it. <laughs> so it's just following you along forever. Like you're going to all these other products. You're still dealing with things you shipped two years ago. You're the only person in the company that knows anything about that. And like the, the support load is, is growing and everyone's hammering you. And the reality is like you become underwater so soon and you're kind of. Okay.
0: So it. this is really about asking yourself, what if we never ship a version two? Can it scale? What are the holes? Are, are
1: we actually okay with that? If there ever was a mental
0: model for a PM, this is it. So next week, we're going to explore more mental models for product people, focusing on mental models for management. That's going to be a good one. Yeah. And if you haven't yet, you should pick up Gabriel Weinberg and Lauren McCann's
1: new book, Super Thinking, that much of this episode was based on. And we'll see you right back here next week for more from Rocketship.fm. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It's your support that keeps the show going. Rocketship.fm is now part of the Podglomerate Network. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the Podglomerate Network, go to thepodglomerate.com.
0: Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. If you go to productcollective.com, you could check out live video interviews, sign up for our newsletter, be a part of our Slack group with over 6,000 product people. Just check it out at
4: productcollective.com.